Hello and welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. We have a very cool guest on today's episode. His name is Mark Beaumont. He is a Scottish ultra-endurance athlete and ultra-endurance cyclist. He is probably best known for setting the world record for cycling around the world, in which he did in just under 80 days. He was averaging over 240 miles a day for almost two and a half straight months, which is absolutely mind-blowing, uh, absolutely wild accomplishment. And we got to talk to Mark about how he set out about doing it, how he arrived at that really audacious goal, how they worked out some of the logistics and some of the rules of how uh, the cycling around the world record works, which was kind of neat to get into. He's also done a whole bunch of other things and we got into some of those things. And uh, Mark was just very gracious with his time. And we really, really appreciated it. We caught up with him from his home in Edinburgh, Scotland, and had an absolute blast chatting with him. Like a lot of our guests, we hope that we can have him back on sometime. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Impact Bar and Algae Foods from Canmore, Alberta, Canada. That's algifoods.com. They have their product called the Impact Bar is a 55 gram bar that is nutrient packed. It's made with algae, so it's totally plant-based, vegan-friendly. It's got 12 grams of protein and 22% of your daily value of iron. Again, they can be found at algaefoods.com. That's algifoods.com. And right now the company is offering an Impact Bar taster, so you can try it before you buy it. In addition to that, they're also offering an exclusive discount for Adventure Audio listeners. So if you go to algaefoods.com forward slash Adventure Audio, you can get 10% off your next order. We hope that you can give them a try. They're a very little cool company from Canmore, great people behind it, and uh, really, really tasty product as well, and very well suited for endurance athletes. The podcast is also brought to you by Ridge Supply. Ridge Supply socks are built for your ride or run to be the bright and keep your feet focused on the adventure of the day. They're made in North Carolina. They're shipped free anywhere in the United States. And Ridge Supply Socks are the perfect way to accent your kit to provide the right amount of high visibility to your feet in motion. Risen from the roadside to shake off the dust and give you watts for the soul. Visit RidgeSupply.com to order your next pair of Skyline Socks. Ridge Supply has a very cool story. Go to their website and check them out. And uh, you can learn a little bit about the origins of that company, but very well worth supporting them. Lastly, the podcast is brought brought to you by Four Good Apparel. For Good is a brand new apparel company founded just outside of Vail, Colorado, with the mission to become a net positive company. On a basic level, net positive means putting more into the system than you take out, and For Good aims to achieve this goal by neutralizing their carbon and waste footprint while also donating a portion of every sale to different organizations working to diversify the outdoors. That's a very cool cause, and we're very happy to be working with Tom from For Good Apparel on exactly that. Be sure to check out their full line of stylish and technical apparel at forgoodapparel.com and use the code ADVENTUREAUDIO for 15% off of your entire order. That's forgood, F-O-R, goodapparel.com. Lastly, we just want to say, obviously, thank you to Mark Beaumont and thank you everybody for listening. The podcast is growing. We really appreciate it. We know that there are people who are trying to support the podcast by word of mouth, uh, helping us share things on social media and stuff. We are greatly appreciative of that. Uh, Also, we would love to hear from you. So you can PM us on Instagram, on Facebook, or on Twitter. And we will certainly get back to you if you have coaching questions for Jim Capra of Tyler Hamilton Training or for Tyler or anything else that you'd like us to cover on the podcast or feedback or anything like that. Love to hear from you. And you can email us at adventureaudiopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening and on to Mr. Mark Beaumont. Uh, what's going on in Scotland right now? What's the uh, weather like? 
It's uh, it's all right. I've not been out today. I had, I had a big race yesterday and I was out filming all last week on the West Coast. So uh, my legs are feeling pretty stripped today. So I've had a day in the office. So apart from walking the dog, uh, I don't care if it rains today. We've um, we've had a weird summer. I mean, it's kind of... Say again? Oh, so, oh, go ahead. You've had a weird summer, you said? Yeah, like it was it was really nice early on, and then we've had some pretty wild weather. So I was out filming on the west coast of Scotland last week, doing like a multi, multi-sport film. Everything from gravel and road riding, ocean rowing, fell running, and it was, it was awesome, but it was just super windy, and so hard to get the drone up, and um, yeah, beautiful. I mean, like the... The downside with COVID is that all of the international shoots that we had planned are cancelled. So it means that I get to make lots of great films about Scotland and there's worse places to be stuck. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm part Scottish, so... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah? I'm, yeah How I'm far too, back? I'm, what's that? How far back? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, yeah. But, well, uh, the yeah, name... I, think the... I, have, I have some root... I mean, Hamilton's my last name. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Hamilton... I, uh, yeah. Hamilton is uh, Hamilton's a town near Glasgow in Ayrshire, so um, it's from like yeah the south of Scotland. Yeah, Hamilton's a pretty pretty famous name over here. So I've only spent a few days in there in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, yeah, Berg, during Edinburgh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, for um, it was the start of it. We had the prologue of the tour of Britain back in like 1998. Yeah, but, but yeah, I've uh, been wanting to go back and visit. And, explore do some maybe bikepacking and hiking yeah for such a small country the cool thing is like i mean i've cycled across the us a couple of times and and the canada and you need to go for hundreds and hundreds of miles for the scenery to change whereas you drop into the next valley in scotland and everything changes so it's quite nice to have such a small country with such a such a like in terms of adventure sports you kind of got everything yeah 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 we're in north america you can be going through prairies for a week I did that. The, la- the last the last ride across was from Anchorage to Halifax, and yeah, I mean Canada. My God, you know you got oh, in wow. third. You've just got like billions of trees and bears, and then flatlands, and then forests and lakes, and it's yeah. it's awesome riding, but it's a long way. So you're you're a bit of a cycling nut, I would say. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah, I've done a few miles. I've yeah, done a yeah, few yeah. miles. Not, 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 not quite as fast as you, but uh, I think we could probably uh, argue about who cycled further. Oh, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Absolutely. Can you, like, what, what, how'd you get bitten by the cycling bug? How would you um, say? Yeah, I mean, I, I was never, I never had a traditional start insofar as I, I didn't, I didn't become a racer as a teenager and come up through the system. I was very much from an adventure background. I was homeschooled, which I now realize was quite important. Like I didn't have any team sports going on. I didn't have any sort of normal reference points for like playground games. So I was doing adventure sports just because I was living on the farm. So in truth, like riding ponies and then horses and then going skiing, because even when I went to high school, the ski slopes were closer to home than school. And then through my teenage year, cycling became more important. Um, But it was never... Like I was never playing soccer or I was never playing rugby. I was always terrible at anything vaguely coordinated or team team wise. My my escape was, you know, the mountains. And um, you know, my first job post school was a ski instructor over in Italy. And, you know, my passion was adventure. So I was 
I was 12 years old when I first cycled across Scotland. Now, for people that haven't visited Scotland, that might sound more impressive than it is. It's not that far. It's only 140 miles to cross Scotland, but I was 12 years old, you know. And then when I was 15, I went, I did, I did my first thousand mile ride. And then by the time I uh, graduated from college, age 22, I had my sights set on cycling around the world. And at that time, I thought it was just like an adventure to end all adventures. Let's get this out my system and then go and become an accountant and work in finance, which is what I was meant to do. Um, and then, hey, it became a career. And, you know, you're talking to me 15 years later and I've, you know, made films in 130 countries and, you know, cycled all over the place. So, yeah, and I, I for me, the performance side's important, like pushing my ability as an endurance athlete. But for me, it's as much, it's as much about, you know, the, the love for where the bike can take me and like the multi-sport, like just the experiences, the culture, the people, the places through pushing yourself through these amazing environments. That's awesome. I first became aware of you. A friend of mine told me, but he's like, there's this guy on YouTube who's riding around the world and you should check it out. And then I ended up reading your, your first book. So when oh, yeah. you, which is, which is great. People should read that. I mean, it's just really a, just a young guy just exploring, learning a lot about himself and, and going around the world. And you had so many interesting experiences in that book. But then what made you circle back to it and think about it from a record perspective? So for those that are like new to the concept of racing around the world for the record, the basics are you've got to go 18,000 miles, which is 27,000 kilometers. The clock never stops. You've got to start finishing the same point. You've got to hit two points on the opposite side of the planet. And ever since the start, ever since I was like 22, 23 and going around the world the first time, I'd always been interested in going fast and trying to break the record. So as I've never been a nomadic traveler. I've never just gone out there on a bike packing trip going, hey, let's see if I turn left or right. Like it's always been on a mission and following the rules. But what's extremely exciting in the last 15 years is how the world of ultra endurance racing and riding has just become so much more professional. I mean, to think when I got into this game back in 2006, 2007, the record for cycling around the world was 276 days, 276. And I mean, you don't need to be a great bike rider to realize that that is not fast. You know, I don't like to be unkind about anyone who has cycled around planet Earth, but that's seriously slow. Um, so I mean, I, even, even the first time with my limited experience, I only had to ride a century a day for every day for half a year. You know, most people can ride 100 miles if they train. So like it's, you read that first book, The Man Who Cycled the World. Y yeah, it was kind of racing, but, you know, it was just a proper boy's own adventure. It was as much about where I'm going to sleep each night and where am I going to find my next meal and clean water. And I was so naive, like I was so like wide eyed going, oh, my God, you know, it was just amazing. Just the, the places I end up in, like sleeping in mosques in Iran and these crazy places in Thailand. And it was just it was it was everything that happened off the bike that made it exciting even though I was going for the record. So I smashed the record back then. But it's interesting to think that what I did at the start of my career now wouldn't even make the papers. Like, so I'm lucky that my career coincided with this just explosion and in interest in endurance riding. And I was kind of there at the point it became a lot more like a lot more exciting and I watched for years as people broke my record. Of course they did. It wasn't even that hard the first time. 
And then I went on to do like a decade of other stuff. And then I sort of watched all the time going, hang on a second. What if I took care of all the unknowns, like all the where's my next meal and where am I going to sleep tonight? What if all that was taken care of and it was a pure bike race? How fast can you go 18,000 miles? Like if you left everything out there and that's what sort of nagged me for years. Yeah, sure. There's loads of other great bike races and routes out there. And Tyler, you can disagree with me on this, but the ultimate is the world. How fast can you get around the planet? You know, I was, I grew up watching Ellen MacArthur sail around the world and like, why is the circumnavigation not the ultimate? Like everyone's racing each other across race across America and Cape Epic and stuff, but it's the world. It's the biggest. So why are the biggest names in ultra endurance not racing around the planet? Well, because it's hard and it's a bloody long way. So um, I, I thought if I've got the chance and the toolkit to come back and just put all my cards on the table, what's the ultimate? And it cost a lot financially, you know, the investment from my family, like we really did put all our cards on the table and I trained for three years. And in the end, I was racing, you know, 240 miles a day, every single day for two and a half months. You know, I was up at half three in the morning, going till half 10 at night, sleep five hours, race again. And, you know, it's nice to have been on a journey where you've got one opportunity to just go, what's my Everest? What's What's everything I've learned from when I was a 12-year-old kid in one race? And not many athletes get to do that. You average 240 miles a day. Yeah. No days off. No days off for two and a half months. And so, like, most bike riders can get their head around a 240-mile day. So just shy of 400K. Like, it's a long ride, but it's fair enough. Like, you can ride 240. Yeah, for one day. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But, But then you need to sleep for five hours get up at half past three on the bike at four and do it again, 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 again. Most riders, I would suggest, would just get repetitive strain injury after three, four days. Their Achilles would blow out, their knees. The conditioning, is you're not, you're not riding super fast, but to, to have the deep conditioning, the, the strength and conditioning, the, the mental fortitude and grit and experience to do that for two and a half months, you know, and my amazing team around me is what I'm really proud of. And... You know, this doesn't get the coverage that the tour gets. But I think it's fascinating when it comes to ultra endurance. When I talk to pro riders, like the reference points, because, you know, I couldn't do what they do. And I don't think they could do what I do. Because like any pro athlete, like it's taken me decades to get to this point. And I think it's interesting. Before I did this, people thought it was nuts. People thought it was impossible. And now it's done. And everyone's like, eh, that's possible. What's next? And I'm like, you thought this was crazy. Like you didn't think this was possible. You didn't think you could average, you know, a thousand miles every four days for two and a half months. So to break a to break the previous world record by like 37% just so blew people's minds and their expectations. But it's amazing now when people talk about it, they're like, yeah, that's possible. And I'm like, yeah, that's only possible because we did it. Like you didn't so believe like it was possible. It's like the four minute before. mile, right? Yeah, and that's what I think so magical about like the 80 days. I hope that record is broken, but there was something magical about like doing this first sub 80. It's absolutely incredible. So like, but to back it up and to sort of unpack how you started to plan this, like where do you start? Are you starting about with logistics? Are you starting with the with the fastest possible route? Like, or are you calculating, trying to mitigate elevation gain? Like, where do you go? Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. I mean, you've got to learn from the past, but when you're trying to 
smash a record by such a margin. You can't be basing your plan off what other people have done. So the, 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 the trap that a lot of athletes fall into is success is just doing better than you did last time or success is just beating my competition. So you need to somehow build a mindset and a process where success is, is absolute rather than comparative success. And by that, I mean, you have the ability to learn from others, to, to, to really, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, but to have the confidence to try stuff completely differently. Because if you don't, if you don't come up with a new model, a new approach, you're only ever going to do something similar to what other people have done. So for example, like the previous world record was 123 days. I had 40 people working for me, 40 people on logistics, performance and media. It was a massive project. And so can you imagine turning around to your team and saying, right, guys and girls, we're going to go break the record. And your reference point for success is one, two, three. Hey, you might do 120. You might do 110. You're not going to do 78. You can't work back from that success to smashing it. And so I had to, for my own sort of buy-in and belief from the team, forget the logistics, firmly talk about what we, what the art of the possible was. And the art of the possible was, sure, I mean, there's a fiction story out there around the world in 80 days, you know, whether it's Disney or Phileas Fogg or, you know, 80 days is a thing. And so, but it can't just be some crazy plan based on a fiction story. You know, you've got to have some some evidence for it. So my logistics team rationally got down to about 78, 79 days in terms of proper bottom-up planning. Like, so your, your inputs every day are, Ride time, recovery time, you know, food and hydration. Those are inputs. Outputs is how far that's going to take you. So you could break it down and go, well, how far am I going to go? The most commonly asked question every day was, where are you aiming to get to? And I would say 16 hours. Because I can't tell you which way the wind's going to blow. I can't tell you the, 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 like the road quality. I can mitigate some of these things, but I can't control them. So defining your entire plan by outputs, by what you plan to do, is a psychological roller coaster because I can put my best effort in, but it will take me a completely different distance. So all I can do is what is sustainable? How long can I sit on the bike every day? And then how do I get some marginal gains around, you know, aero and you know efficiency and my wattage? And how do I how do I make sure what I'm putting into the bike is on the balance between sustainable and injury? So you know you can you can easily overcook it in any given day and you'll be fine but then you'll pay for it tomorrow so it's not like a stage race where it's all over in you know a week or three weeks you know this is two and a half months so you've got to be putting back into your body what you're what you're taking out so basically my team got to about 78 79 days and then i said hang on a second uh no i should have said 88 89 days and then i put it to them as a hypothesis i was like do you think we could get another week off of that? And they looked at me and they're like, that's crazy. How do you get another week off of it? And I was like, well, sub 80 would be nice. So I think it's interesting looking back because if 80 days didn't exist as a concept, we would have quite happily settled at that bottom up planning. Like we rationally got to the 88, 89 days. And like that seemed like a crazy plan based on what had previously been done. And it was only when I sort of went, oh, 88, 89, that's not far off 80. And then to be on the start line going, right, we live this journey, not by how far we go every day, but just ruthless controllables. Like 
my team didn't get a telling off if we didn't ride the distance. But if I was on the bike at five past four and not four o'clock, that was unacceptable. Because like we messed around for five minutes every time I got off the bike, that adds a day to the world record. So it was just ruthless consistency around stuff you control. And we knew like the big picture scared the hell out of me. I mean, you got to be a bike rider to understand how far 240 miles is. You know, you can drive that, but hell, riding a bike that distance is hard. And then to get the team to buy into the discipline to execute on that plan over an 18,000 mile race was hardcore. So, you know, even a week of that just freaked me out. I, I just couldn't compute it. It was just too scary. Like I would go from Paris to Moscow in a week. Um, but when I thought about the next four hour block, well, there's no reason I can't ride the next four hour block. You know, the next four hour blocks only like 100, 120K. I can do that. Then do it again. Then do it again. Then do it again. Then sleep for five hours. Repeat. So the block program I believed in, the big picture, uh, you wouldn't be human if it didn't scare you. So you just, the strategy was to just compartmentalize everything oh, into these right. little increments. Yeah, during the planning stage, you know, get good at the logistics, the big picture, all the stuff that's going to get you around the world fast. And then, as Tyler knows, when you're on the bike, ride the road in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you're you're an inspiration, man. Uh, it's crazy. Incredible. Uh, when did you do this? When did you do the this event? I finished pretty much exactly three years ago. Okay, so, fantastic. so yeah, three 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 years ago, I I, I finished back in Paris. As you well know, pretty pretty cool place to start and finish a bike race. That's cool. That's fantastic. Are you still tired? <laughs> it took a while. Yeah, I'm sure. it took a while, man. The the physical and mental journey off any big expedition like that doesn't take yeah. you a good night's sleep. It takes you months. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, just going through all the different countries and the logistics. How, like, how was that? Did you ever get like tied up at a border? Like they're saying you can't get through or what? Yeah, so yeah. most most people, I mean, the answer is yes, but we, we got around most of it. So yeah. if I think of talk the, about, can you also talk about the route, which route you took? Sure. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, leg one was uh, Paris to Beijing. So it took 28 days to get from France to China, like the, the, like the Great Wall of China. Wow. And then I did coast to coast across Australia through the Nullarbor, through the outback, uh, the length of New Zealand. Took less than five days, length of New Zealand, five and a half thousand miles across uh, Canada, well, from Anchorage to Halifax. And then what I joked about is the sprint finish, which was Lisbon and Portugal back up to Paris. Oh. It was 1,100 miles. So most people who've gone for the round the world record in the last 15, 20 years just see it as a bike race. And so the approach has very much been like train hard, pick a route, and then just start and see what happens. And I'm not saying that other people haven't considered lots of options, but like we really geeked out for a long time, like six months and put a huge amount of resources and team onto what is the flattest, fastest, best route? How do we mitigate all the bureaucracies, the border crossings? You know, everyone stresses out about getting across like say Russia, you know, China, whatever. But rather than just worrying about that and seeing it as a bike race, like we did everything in our powers to make sure that the wheels never stopped turning. So 
everyone freaks out about Russia, Mongolia, China, if you go that route. I mean, the first time I cycled around the world, I took a totally different route. I went through Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, India. So you can take whatever route you want, as long as you never go back on yourself and hit certain points. But my approach was get the support you need. So for example, we hired the honorary consul from Mongolia. He's the guy in the UK who literally issues the visas on your passports. Like we, we, we paid him onto the team. Uh, so he could give us all the local contacts, get us through uh, Russia so that we would never be stopped by police and delayed, get through, I say, those checkpoints as, much, as quickly as possible. We got on board with the team Menzies Aviation, who are ground handlers at all of the airports we went through. You know, that sounds like a bit crazy, like, but you think about it, like, we had 12 hours of contingency in our plan per continent of the world. You can lose 12 hours in a flight. So by having the inside person at each airport meant that we probably saved ourselves half a day on the record by having that that inside support. So like through no fault of my own, the plane was delayed leaving Beijing. So you imagine you get to the Great Wall of China, get to check-in, you know, race through, you lose no time at all and then the plane sat on the runway for like two hours i'll never know why it sat on the runway but it sat on the runway i'm going i'm just freaking out because if we don't make the connection through singapore airport then we've lost a ton of time and we missed the connecting flight onto perth australia so everyone else on that flight everyone else who was going to australia missed it and had to wait for another 12 hours to get the next flight to australia but guess what we've got Menzies Aviation. So as soon as I land, you know, we're met on the golf buggy, like they, they, they held the flight and I made the connection. And it might sound flippant, but by making that flight, even if I'd averaged like 270 to 80 miles a day through Australia, I would never make back a 12 hour deficit. You'd never make that back. So by nailing all the transit points, all the border crossings, all that kind of stuff, means that your bike your time on the bike is optimized let me give you another example if you're going a thousand miles eastwards every four days you're crossing a time zone every three four days so as an athlete are you going to suddenly get like an hour's less sleep you're only sleeping five hours from half ten at night till half past three every morning so if you suddenly get four hours sleep or there's a couple of two hour time zone changes are you going to get three hours sleep and then do another 16 hour ride so rather than dealing with that as an athlete, every morning at eight o'clock, we just moved our watches back by 15 minutes. So we treated every day like it was 23 hours and 45 minutes as we chased the sun eastwards around the planet. And, okay. then, day, and then day 49, we lived twice as we crossed the international dateline. So like normally you would never have to deal with such issues as you fly somewhere, you just get jet lagged. But as an athlete, if you're on the bike 16 hours a day, you need to somehow optimize your performance and not get hit by those things. So Everything had been dialed. Everything had been thought through before I turned a single pedal stroke. How did you settle on five hours of sleep? Did you is, is that because you worked it backwards and thought this is the amount of cycling time I need? Or had you had enough experience to know that you could continue to perform on five? Because that's a lot less than a lot of people would probably want to be sleeping over a two and a half month span. No, sure. I, uh, I love sleep like the rest of us. But um, we did a bunch of testing in the UK in terms of what sleep I could get away with and what my cognitive function dropped to. I don't know if you've ever done this stuff, Tyler, when you were when you were racing, but like you go to idiot mode when you're super tired. Oh, 
like your co your cognitive function really fades. So we did a bunch of tests to know not just like in terms of decision making, but also behaviorally, like how I was under stress and sleep deprivation. So we would do like the biggest we did was a 500 mile nonstop ride, just like ride to fail, just ride 500 miles, don't sleep and just just see how I function. And then we would do a bunch of tests over like two hour blocks, three hour blocks, four hour blocks, five hour blocks, and just just see physically and mentally what my recovery was like. So four hour blocks felt like a good stretch but not too long that my performance would start to drop off. Once you've been on the bike for five, six hours, those last few hours, it's very hard to keep the same consistency and power and mental focus. So I kind of feel, think you need a break point every three, four, five hours, depending on your experience. And then, you know, you hit pause, do whatever you need to do, get some fuel back in and get back on the bike. But, you know, I'm not going to lie, you know, when the alarm goes off at half three and you're on the bike at four, that graveyard shift, you know, riding four till eight every morning was hell, you know. I don't know how many of you have done night riding, but it's brutal. Like if you've ridden 16 hours to then get not enough sleep and then ride through dawn, it's beautiful to ride through dawn, but those cold early hours are, you know, when the body and the mind are screaming is, especially when you've got 16 hours ahead of you, you try not to think about the length of the road. You just, you know, you just, you just somehow, you know, focus on what you can do to get through and again you'll 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 probably get this from tour racing your your body gives up once your mind gives up if you've um if you decide you can't do it guess what you can't do it so it's amazing what the bat body can endure as long as you keep the mind in the right place which is you know easier said than done how did you train mentally for it did you have a sports psychologist or anything I mean, obviously you had a lot of experience to lean on, but this is a different thing. I never did. You know, I've often been asked, you know, surely had a sports psych. I've worked with a lot of great people and mentors and coaches, but I've never had that specific role on my team, um, which is odd. I've just done a lot of other sports where I've drawn strength from. So I've done a lot of ocean rowing, you know, where I've dealt with a insane amount of sleep deprivation you know rowing the atlantic from africa across to the caribbean you know going two hours on two hours off two hours on two hours off two hours on two hours off, for a month so never sleeping for more than 90 minutes i rode a boat further north than anyone's ever gone before 800 miles north of the arctic circle through the ice fields and you know the the risks and dangers with that and the sleep deprivation were pretty next level and saddle sores they make saddle sores in a bike seem pretty tame so um I'm not saying that, like, you can't learn that sort of stuff in a book or in a classroom. You've just got to endure. You've got to suffer. You've got to know how to suffer. And I wish I could wrap it up in something prettier. But, you know, the the X factor with good endurance bike riders is not their power to rate ratio. It's not their VO2 max. It's, it's their ability to suffer well. And um, when... I guess you've got to be an endurance bike rider to understand that because then you ask the question, well, why would you bother? Well, what's like, what's the, what's the point in it? But there's something pretty glorious in any sport with the simple ability to figure out what your personal best is. You know, even if there's nobody else in that race, just feeling like you're putting it all on the line. There's something, you know, life's pretty comfortable otherwise. And I've never felt, found anything else in life where you've got that, you know, just, 
sense of flow and commitment and yeah it's uh it's the hardest thing to put into words yeah i love it yeah um, that's did, amazing did you do, so what's mark what's next what's next uh i'm having fun making a bunch of uh, films adventure films documentaries i've just come back from the west coast of scotland doing a, a multi-sport adventure film where i was ocean rowing fell running gravel and road riding um I would like to take on some traditional races. Sounds odd after 15 years doing big ultra stuff, but I'm quite interested to know after having pedaled around the world twice, top to bottom, you know, I still hold the Africa world record carrier to Cape Town. I'm quite interested to know if I could take that experience into, into a, an endurance road race space. Um, you know, Things like Race Across America intrigue me. I, I would love those athletes to go the other way and take on some of the records I've taken on. But I mean, I'm not being patronizing about RAM, but that's a 3,000 mile race. You know, my shortest world record at the moment is 6,000 miles. So the distance doesn't scare me, but I, I completely respect that the intensity of that is dialed up once again. You know, you, you basically don't sleep for seven, eight days. So yeah. I've definitely got the right background and skill set for it. I've just never stood on the start line with anyone. You know, I've always just been doing these big expedition rides. So, so in answer to your question, Tyler, like I would love to continue to make films that, you know, and inform and inspire people and give people confidence to go out there and push their abilities as athletes. And I don't mean cycling around the world. It might be just taking on your first century, but just genuinely like, you know, what is it that gives people the ability to, to endure? And myself, I'd love to, you know, get out there and, you know, just continue to use the bike to take on some big races and push myself but i've got no i've got no um no reason to cycle around the world again you know i kind of feel that was my everest there's nothing i don't have anything else to prove to myself there i'd love to see somebody trying to break my record i think that would be fascinating but i want to push myself in different directions i've been having a ton of fun doing totally mad stuff different stuff like the oldest cycling record in the books was the hour record on a penny farthing do you know what a penny farthing oh, i wanted to ask you about that yeah yeah for sure I, read about that. I love the history of sport i love the history of cycling and the oldest cycling record was the penny farthing hour record you know the original hour so i spent two years trying to trying to break the hour record on a on a penny farthing it's got like a 54 inch wheel it's nuts solid tires no brakes you know you're on a you know, a 44 degrees banked corner on a thing the size of a horse. It's nuts. But, you know, okay, it's not cycling around the world, but I absolutely love just, I, I did a, I made a film last year about the very first Tour de France back in 1903, where we got, you know, 120 year old bicycles and rode that first stage from Paris to Lyon. That's nearly 300 miles on a, on a fixie. And just insane what those guys did back at the start of the tour in those days so for me it doesn't need to be cycling around the world like it's that rich tapestry of pushing yourself as an athlete but also um you know exploring the world and exploring the history of the sport so you've got my, my mad dog barking in the background i love dogs i love dogs <laughs> yeah okay. it could be it could yeah. be any one of our dogs so nobody <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nobody needs to know um, what about the Tour Divide? Are you familiar yeah. with that race? I was going to ask you the same thing. It yeah. starts about 100 kilometers from my house, and it goes right near Tyler's, too. Uh, yeah, it goes to Antelope yeah. Wells in Mexico. I read a book about it. 
I read a book about a UK journalist who did it. So he wasn't a pro rider. He wasn't a particularly good rider. He did it as an amateur, but I loved his story. He wrote a book called Two Wheels on My Wagon. And uh, it was a really neat story. And I got to interview him at a, a literary festival, at a book festival over here. So I, I, I learned through him about the Tour Divide and it sounded awesome. I'd love to get over and do stuff like that. That's, I think you got to go for that. I think you could, you know, that that record's extremely yeah. fast. It's um, the current record holders, Mike Hall, who passed. I'm sure you know who Mike Hall is and passed away really sadly in Australia racing. Um, and he's uh, 13, 13 and something days. But yeah. uh, I think Mike was, Mike, Mike, Mike was a legend. He was a, a huge name in the sport of endurance. And I met him a, a couple of times. Um, I remember I was doing an event in England on a talk tour and he came up to me uh, while I was doing my book signing at the end and said, uh, oh, Mark, I'm going to cycle around the world and go for the record. And, you know, I chatted to him and people say that to me all the time. You know, I didn't take it too seriously. And then guess what? He went out and he absolutely nailed it and he became a huge name in the sport. So, yeah, I, I, the great late Mike Hall and I'd love to get across and take on that ride and a bunch of others that he did. He's he's really well known across in Europe for the, you know, the transcontinental race that he set up. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's a, a, a great rider. Very cool. Now, can I ask you about your bike setup for going around the world? Were you riding one bike? Yeah. So the rules of the race are you've got to ride the same bike, but it's a funny one because that's just like, say race across America, they switch between road bikes and time trial bikes, depending on the terrain. So they want to stop you doing that. So basically you're allowed one setup. So the, the the truth is I had seven bikes, but they were identical bikes. And I'm the first guy that's done that. Everyone else has just read it literally and said, oh, okay, I've got one bike. But you imagine like coming off the flight, my team's been there for a week prepping. They've got the bike at the door of the airport. You know, I'm off. From touching down in Perth, Australia, the wheels touching the runway to me riding out was 35 minutes. You know, the, the, it's the, crazy. the time scale on this was so tight. So, um, so yeah, I had seven identical bikes and they were sort of being couriered around the world to, to optimize my, my, my timings. And it's basically, it's basically like, a, I mean, it's, a, it's an endurance road setup. So I would describe it as like a, an old man road bike, quite a comfortable geometry, but still caring about, you know, your aero and your speeds riding 28s. So you've got some comfort on the tires. Uh, so, so for people who are not roadies, slightly wider tires than although although even the pro tour is going to the slightly wider tires these days. Um, riding with skis, so you've got the tri bars on, so you can get into that aero time trial position as much as possible. But I would describe it as sort of a round back rather than a flat back. So if you look at like an Ironman athlete or you know the time trial guys in the tour, they're very flat backed, very low, very aggressive neck angle if you look up at all, whereas a lot of the guys just stare at their front tire. Whereas, obviously, when you're solo road riding over 16 hours a day, you cannot suffer that position. So it's a fine balance between the aero advantage, which you obviously get, with also a position you can suffer for four times four hour sets a day. Yeah. Do you use that? What was it? It was a Koga, so uh, it's like a small Dutch manufacturer. People don't really know Koga. If you ever look at the Dutch track team, they all ride Koga, but it's a it's a pretty small brand. What were you going to say, Tyler? Uh, yeah, did you, did you use deep dish wheels? Yeah. 
So I would switch. You can imagine, you know, most of the time I was wanting to ride, you know, for, uh, typically 47s. So nice, deep section wheels, really lightly laced. But, you know, when you get a big side wind or, you know, it's particularly, you know, a, a tough climbing day, I would put 32s on. Um, sometimes you mix it up, you know, you've got a deep section back and a, and a, and a shallow front. Um, but most of, if I think of the 18,000 mile race, I probably did 17,000 miles on, on deep sections. You know, it's, it's quicker. Yeah, they're quicker. They're quick. I think so. And would you use like a skin suit? I mean, might as well, right? Or like... Yeah, I rode a full skin suit when I rode Cairo to Cape Town. So yep. going back a few years, Cairo to Cape Town, which is a 6,000 mile race down the length of Africa, was kind of like my training record before the world because it's a third of the world in terms of distance. Okay. So I rode with a full skin suit then and riding all day every day, I found it pretty impractical. So I, you know, of course I had a tailor-made you know, custom kit, which was as good as a skin suit, but it was still bib shorts and jersey in the end, rather than like a full skin suit. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was riding, you know, a, a helmet with a visor rather than sunglasses and, you know, wearing sleeves as much as possible. And, you know, the people don't realize even when you're riding at those relatively slow speeds, I say relatively because you're, you know, doing it for 16 hours a day, you know, that your position on the bike and your aero advantage is still your biggest thing you can play around with. People think it's just, you have to be a tour rider to care about those things. That's, that's, that's simply not true. You make your life so much easier if you really geek out on your biomechanics on the bike and your, you know, your, your position. Yeah, absolutely. Did you spend some time in the wind tunnel to dial in that, all those choices? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we played around in the wind tunnel. We did We did a bunch of, bunch of stuff. And it's interesting when you're on the rig, when you're doing the bike fitting, when you're in the wind tunnel, but there's no way to really replicate what it's going to be like doing those ultra endurance miles. So it's also very hard to find advisors who are really ultra endurance, right? So it's very easy to find a bike fitter, a coach, you know, a, a designer who's worked with Ironman athletes or, um, or time trialers. That's relatively easy. But actually finding people, people in your team who have got the life experience for riding ultra, ultra endurance is hard because it's such a different language. And, and all those things that relate well to doing a 20 mile time trial just just don't don't really relate well when you're you're trying to push, you know, 240. Because keep in mind, to make 240 miles your average, you have to be able to ride through it regularly. So you're regularly knocking out 260s, 270s. So you've got to have a reference point for these distances to understand then how a rider, you know, fuels through that. You know, how do you keep your gut going? How do you, you know, again, a lot of riders will worry about their legs. Well, when you cycle vast distances, the thing that normally fails is your stomach. I wanted to ask about that too, because I'm just doing some rough math in my head. You must have been burning eight to 10,000 calories a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it sounds like a lot of fun. But um, for a day, it sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds hard to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Because eating becomes a job, you know. And um, whereas if you're on like a, a week long race, you know, it can be a bit of a battle of attrition. You can finish lighter than you started. 
when you're doing it for two and a half months, it's got to be ultimately sustainable. You've got to be putting in what you're taking out. So, I mean, people always talk about being, you know, fat adapted and, you know, being a diesel engine and being an endurance rider. But, you know, you can't eat 10,000 calories of spaghetti. So you can't just, you know, the if you go back to the 80s and 90s, the ideas of how you fuel for endurance and bike riding have totally changed for sure. But but you still need a sort of a carb appropriate diet. You, you can't just be, you know, so fat adapted that you think you're going to live off, you know, packs of butter. And that might work if you're pulling a sled across the South Pole. But if you need that turn of power to ride hills, to push into the wind, to, you know, up your tempo, to, you know, reach zone four, zone five at points, you, you, you have to be very careful to get in a quantity of food which is going to give you that slow release mentally and physically so you don't want to be living off your last you know jelly boost but or gel bar but you do need to be, be, be giving yourself you know enough complex and simple carbs and sugars and you know the glucose stores that you need to to mentally and physically function well because you can easily go into this sort of stupor when you're trying to be too fat adapted where you know you're just bumping along on what sort of you you just don't have you just don't have the drive so 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 you can keep going all day long but you don't have that sort of performance edge so i think a lot of athletes get sort of fixated on different diet fads and you know the methodology i always preach is very much about keep it natural keep it supernatural because your body can't if you look at something and it's hard for your body to digest when it comes to endurance your body's already having a hard time so be kind on yourself so if it looks like it's spent a lot of time in a factory you know just avoid it when it comes to ultra endurance and make sure what you're doing is carb appropriate so even if you've worked hard to become fat adapted then that's great and so far as you have the ability to endure but then when you up your miles and up your hours make sure you're still you know getting what you need to to keep a reasonable performance level and it's a hard balance to get you've really got to it's not something you can just learn on the you know the turbo trainer in the garage over the winter you've 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 got to build the conditioning and build the miles to train your gut what were your go-to foods <laughs> i mean a lot of eating was done on the bike so i mean you know it's constantly being throwing wraps out the window you know then you've typically got a, a protein wrapped in a carbohydrate um I always rated my my chef's meals on a scale of one to ten, both in terms of their um, how appealing they were, but also how easy they were to eat on the bike. They would they'd have a ton of fun trying to feed me these ridiculous things, which I'm sure you know what it's like when it's fed out the RV window. You're like, how the hell do I eat this while riding along? It's just these amazing creations. I guess they got bored in the in the support van and were trying to get really really uh, really inventive. I was I was I was sponsored by a little boutique chocolate factory in the UK, and that was my that was my little treat. So uh, I had top world class chocolate and coffee, which was my um, which was my sort of keep me going when I was having a tough ride. Yeah, that's important. That's really important. Of course, it's, food is food is such a mental perk, isn't it? You know, yeah. it can it can dig you out of such a hole. Yeah, and it, you sort yeah. of you sort of you sort of think before you become an endurance athlete or before you go on a ride, you think you're just going to want sweet, but the the reality is you so often crave savory, you crave salt, you crave you know. So it's it's often it's often the opposite from what you think. 
so the idea of like a, a really sickly electrolyte drink or another gel bar it just 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 kills you when you're 200 miles into a ride you just want you just want proper food yeah especially when you've been sweating a lot salt is naturally crave that yeah, for sure i have i have a i have one question about your choice to, with north america um anchorage to in again uh, without looking at a map and doing the math anchorage to halifax um in my mind would be a harder ride than just going straight across the u.s uh, but did you need to pick up the mileage there because that would be longer wouldn't it yeah for sure so you need to hit eighteen thousand miles without ever going back on yourself so you want to do more miles in the sort of the quote-unquote fast continents and less miles in the slow continents so um the first time I went around the world, I went to India, down Southeast Asia from Bangkok to Singapore, and then across Australia up New Zealand. And then I went from San Francisco to Florida. So like basically down Route 1, Big Sur, LA, San Diego, and then across. So still going east all the time, but like the southern tier. And that was a really cool route, but it wouldn't have given me enough miles because this time around I missed Southeast Asia. Now, the reason I missed Southeast Asia is because I went all the way across to Beijing, so Beijing is on exactly the same degree of longitude as Perth, Australia. So if you drop down in a line, you get to... So one guy about five years ago went all the way to Shanghai and then dropped down to Perth, Australia and then finished, claimed the record, got in the papers and then had to be told by Guinness World Records that he'd gone back on himself because Shanghai is further east than Perth. You'd be pretty ruined, wouldn't you? Um, so, so, so... Oh, it's pretty That's bad. Tough. Yeah, yeah, mess up, yeah, mess the, up in the planning. The rules are the rules. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty stupid. Um, so the Southeast Asia stretch I couldn't do because I chose to keep going east all the way to Beijing. So I needed to make up that thousand miles somewhere. So going all the way across to Anchorage in Alaska was a was a quick way of doing it. But if anyone's ever ridden like Alaska through like Tok Junction, the Alcan Highway down through the Yukon. <laughs> it's pretty hilly like it's not that first week is not fast riding it's beautiful like the Yukon and North BC is awesome but it's not, not quick what t and so what months were you were you there was August. it you it would have been late summer August okay so that's, yeah. that's the exact right time of year to be there because if you get there in June uh just the bugs would drive you <laughs> mad so that was well strategized, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you try and go, you try and go too quick for them. So, Mark, you've ridden all around the world. If you could, um, if you could go back and just do one section of riding, maybe a five hundred to a thousand miles, what would that be? And it can't be your backyard. No. Yeah. Where um, like, does it? Do you have a favorite place to to ride? I don't know. I've been okay. down in South America. I think that's pretty beautiful down there. But yeah. yeah, it is. All right, I'll I'll be quick about this, but I'll give you a top three. Um, oh, cool. Northern Botswana, Northern Botswana. So riding from the Zambezi River down like Elephant Highway. So you've got elephants on the road. You know, riding along with giraffes cantering alongside you. It's just awesome. Um, west coast of Norway, up through the Lofoten Isles all around the fjords, uh, through the Arctic Circle. That's number two. Uh, number three, the Atacama Desert. So northern Chile. So oh, yeah. going, yeah, 600 miles from the 
from the border down through to like the Mendoza Pass. I was actually back out there riding just before lockdown. I did a ride, I, I rode through the Atacama, like, so I did a 13,000 mile ride from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, uh, like about 10 years ago. But I was back there last year to try and do the world's um, longest free ride descent. So the, the, the highest volcano in the world is on the Chile-Argentinian border. It's called Ojos del Salado just shy of 7,000 meters. And so we wanted to get bikes to the top on our backs. So you're in a, like a volcano with lots of scree coming out of the desert. So we took two weeks to climb with bikes on our backs to the summit and then did a free ride all the way through the Atacama Desert to the Pacific Ocean. It's two days straight free ride descent, Whoa. 300 kilometers. Um, but but climbing, I don't know what, I don't know what 7,000 meters is in- That's uh, a lot. In Imperial, it's high. 20, 20, <laughs> wow, 20,000 something so, feet. That's a, I it's absolutely, an awful lot. Yeah, I absolutely love it. It's, it's, it's higher than Denali, put it that way. Yeah, so I uh, I love it down there. The Atacama Desert and the volcanoes on the Argentinian border are pretty awesome. So there you go, there's my top three. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my last question is like, if you were to do a bike pack trip, bike pack trip in Scotland, where would you yeah. go? That's for myself. That's for myself. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the north. Uh, I mean, yeah. So north. head head right up into the Highlands. Uh, it's a route yeah. called the North North Coast Five Hundred. So it's an eight hundred kilometer, five hundred mile route. Uh, last year, I was asked to come up with a version of it that was better for cyclists, gets away from the motorhomes and the caravans. So I came up with a route which was on all the t the tiny roads and uh, takes you right around the north of Scotland. You can see the islands over to Orkney and and the Western Isles. It is awesome. It's just breathtaking up there. I was out, I was out on part of that route last week filming, and every time I go, uh, we're so lucky to have that on our doorstep. Awesome. Thank you. Incredible. Thank you. Mark, where can people follow along with uh, everything that you're up to? Because it doesn't sound like you're slowing down at all. So there's lots of adventures, and I'm sure as we come out of COVID, there's going to be lots of lots of other really cool projects going on. So where can everybody follow along with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find on social media, uh, Mr. Mark Beaumont, you know, all the normal places. My websites, like most websites, a bit dated these days because social's easier, but uh, Mark Beaumont online. And uh, I've got a bunch of films out there on Global Cycling Network, GCN, and, uh, and YouTube. So yeah, just Mark Beaumont, put it into Google and uh, you'll find me. Awesome. That's awesome. You must Mark, have some so Yeah, but you must have a few sponsors out there that have been helping you like, get around the world or do all these yeah, crazy events. Yeah, great point. Anybody we should give a shout out to? Yeah, that's good of you, Tyler. Um, for the for the big expeditions, Artemis have been my big backer. They've been amazing. They've nice. they've stood by me with, with for over a decade, uh, which wow. is pretty awesome. Um, these days, you know, it's pretty hard to find those long-standing relationships that love to take on projects that are, on the face of it, pretty high risk. And I've got a good track record for pulling them off, but, you know, they're, they're hard. So, yeah, LDC is another one. Only UK people will know these names. Um, Kamut, the, an awesome way for people to find new trails. I've been working with them a lot in terms of the endurance space. Um and again, these are more European, UK brands, but working with the likes of Altura 
Um, and um, Shimano worked with them for a while in terms of testing their their gravel and endurance kit. So maybe maybe for your North American audience, the only name I've mentioned that has been a long time supporter of m myself is is Shimano, and they obviously tried and tested. Yeah, very. Awesome. Hey, man, what an honor to have you on our little podcast, Mark. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks for spending the time with us. And uh, hey, I think Tour Divide is right up your alley. And Pete, uh, li Pete lives close to the start. I live about maybe a quarter of the way down in Montana. So we'll be cheering you on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been great to chat. I've enjoyed it. And when I, when I make it across, I'll let you know. Awesome. Thanks again to everybody for listening. Thank you again to Mark Beaumont. And we will be back very soon. We've got a couple more episodes that we should be looking at getting recorded um, next week. So hope to uh, hear from you again. That's adventureaudiopodcast.gmail.com if you'd like to reach out. Otherwise, stay tuned. We'll have more stuff coming at you very soon. Thanks again.